This is Dennis McKenna, and you are listening to Entheo Nation with Lorna Liana. Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. there, visionaries. Lorna here. Before we dive into this fascinating discussion with Dennis McKenna on ayahuasca and co-evolution, I want to ask you, do you think that vision-inducing organisms have a conscious agenda towards the development of the human species? According to Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory, the transformation from humans' early ancestors, Homo erectus, to the species Homo sapiens mainly had to do with the addition of the mushroom Psilocybe cubensis in its diet. Basically, magic mushrooms created modern man. To get a visual understanding of how this theory plays out, go to our episode show notes at entheonation.com slash five and check out Comedy Central's spot-on animation of Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory. In fact, you should just get on our mailing list and receive far-out information like this and more by simply texting ENTHEONATION, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email to get access to premium content that's only available to bona fide citizens of Entheonation. Now, in case you didn't know who Terence McKenna was, he was an American ethnobotanist, mystic, psychonaut, lecturer, author, and an advocate for the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants. Our guest today, Dennis McKenna, is his brother, and he's got lots to say about ayahuasca's relationship to humanity. Let's dive in. Hello, visionary people of Entheo Nation. I am here today with a very special guest who I met over 10 years ago in the Peruvian Amazon in Iquitos at the very first ayahuasca conference started by Alan Shoemaker. Um, so my special guest today is Dennis McKenna, who is the brother of the late Terence McKenna. Now, Dennis is an ethno-pharmacologist. He is the founding board member of the Heifer Research Institute and the assistant professor of the Center for Spiritual Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. Now, um, Dennis has studied plant hallucinogens for over 30 years and with ayahuasca as his specialty of focus. So in this episode today, Dennis will share with us his thoughts about ayahuasca and human destiny. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dennis. Thank you, Lorna, for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So I am very intrigued by your professional history, and uh, your bio says that you've been studying plant hallucinogens for over 30 years, so I'd love to discover how you got into all of that and which uh, plants you've had the opportunity to study. <laughs> well, like uh, that's a long that's a, a long story, but like uh, a lot of little brothers, I guess I was led down the primrose path by my big brother Terence. Uh, you know, back in the '60s, we shared an intense interest in psychedelics, and that was kind of the meme of the day. That was what was happening, but. We were very uh, sort of uh, dissatisfied with the, with the sort of uh, you know late '60s social context. That was like there was no model for psychedelics in our society. And when LSD came along, it sort of was dropped like a bomb into the middle of society. And suddenly there was, you know, the only spokesman for it was Timothy Leary, and he kind of had his own agenda, and he was really as clueless as everybody else, you know, and. And, and so we were excited when we discovered that there is actually a shamanic tradition around the use of these plant medicines that many groups, uh, especially in the New World, have been using these things for thousands of years, you know, and in their shamanic practices. So we figured, well, if we're serious about psychedelics, we have to go down there and talk to these gentlemen and and sometimes ladies, who use these plant medicines in the context of, of their own traditional medicine. So that's what led us to go to South America for the first time in 1971. And we were looking for a very obscure hallucinogen that no one's ever heard of, or few people even today have heard of, called ukuhe, derived from a completely different set of plants than ayahuasca but a similar pharmacology in the sense that it has DMT, which is uh, the main psychedelic component, but it's an orally active form of DMT, like ayahuasca. And so we were looking for that plant because our experiences with uh, synthetic DMT in Berkeley in the 60s were amazing, but but not satisfied in the sense that all they were was amazing. We couldn't come out with, come back with any real information from those experiences. So we were motivated to go down and find a f natural form of DMT that would last longer so that we could, that was our assumption that it would last longer so that we could actually kind of stick around in that dimension and see what was going on. Because, you know, if you, if you've taken synthetic DMT, you know, it's a very short, short experience there's a whole lot going on it's quite overwhelming but it's very hard to get a get a handle on it and bring much back that's useful other than oh wow or something like that you know so we were motivated to go to south america to look for ukuhe at the time the, the pharmacology and chemistry of ayahuasca wasn't very well understood. It wasn't even clear that it was DMT, that it, you know, and, and about the same time we were doing this work, all the work on the admixtures, the importance of the admixture plants, uh, chacruna and uh, chagropanga and these other DMT-containing admixtures was just being sorted out. 
you know, by Schultes, Ari Schultes, the famous botanist, and his graduate students. And then, uh, you know, if you've read the, my book or any of Terence's book, you know that, you know, we went to this place called La Chirera, uh in Colombia, in the Colombian Amazon, in search of Ukuhe. You know, so but who when uses we, Ukuhe and how do they use it? Well, it's it's the Witoto Indians primarily, the Witoto groups and a couple of closely related groups, and that's why we went to La Chirera because that was their ancestral home. Was you know, and so we figured that that's where we have to go to to find it. They use it. In that group, Ukuhe is a dying tradition, you know, as indeed the cultures themselves are highly impacted. If you want to look at an indigenous, uh, an indigenous tribe that's in the process of basically uh, falling apart as far, under the impact of global forces, the Witoto are a, a good case study for that. So when we went there, even at that time, uh, you know, the knowledge of the use of Ukuhe was known to only a few a few people and uh you know it, it's kind of a shamanic secret and it wasn't necessarily used for spiritual exploration it was more like it was used in sorcery and that sort of thing i mean the, the way that uh, ukuhe was used in that culture it was uh not in a particularly nice way you know i mean it was a way for one shaman to get put the whammy on another shaman the traditional context the way that ayahuasca is used in in mestizo culture you know it's not all fuzzy bunnies and happy hippies i mean you know <laughs> there's some serious sorcery going on like serious sorcery and counter hexes and you know throwing right. energetic darts and like you know making people sick i mean it's i feel blessed that i did not get caught up in anything sketchy in in peru and that most of my ayahuasca experiences in brazil where it's almost like so much much more gentle and you know safe and uh disneyland like in a certain way i guess yeah, yeah. It, in in Brazil, though, you often encounter it in the context of these religions, like the Santo Daime and the UDV, and it's not really a traditional use. They have adopted ayahuasca, and they use it as a, a sacramental way. So, but in the context of what's essentially a, a Christian practice, and and their use of it is much much more like the way that Native Americans use peyote, you know, um, I mean, it's a, it's a much more sacramental <laughs> yeah, thing. It's not, sure. not this, it, they don't funny. even, they don't even admit that it's a medicine. I mean, they don't even like the notion that it's a medicine. And of course, because then that means, oh, it's a drug. And they're seriously interested in denying that it is a drug. You can't call our sacrament a drug. That's insulting. But, but the shamans in the Peruvian tradition are very, of course, it's a medicine. It's all about medicine. And you can use medicine for harm or for good. And now, of course, we're seeing the, the you know, this, this mestizo tradition of vegetalismo or curanderismo or whatever you'd like to call it is being transformed again in response to the Western influences. So people are modifying their practices because they have a clientele, you know, they have these foreigners that are coming down, paying them more money than they ever imagined they'd ever see to do these ceremonies. So they're tailoring their practices to that and really sort of 
not emphasizing the sorcery and, uh-huh. <laughs> and all that, which, which still goes uh-huh. on. But, you know, but that's not, you know, that's not it. They, they've sort of created this new agey neo-shamanism. Yeah, kind of like the <laughs> um, ayahuasca retreats, you know, for yeah. psychological breakthroughs right, right. and healing and therapy, that kind of thing. I mean, the yeah. groups of people I mean, that are gathering together, I mean, my experience with the tribes, you know, granted was that, you know, it was, if it was a group, it was like the village, you know, getting together or, Ex- you know, you went to see the shaman when you were sick and it was like you and the shaman so these like groups of people spending a week doing a dieta seems like a fairly new phenomenon would you say yeah it's a new phenomenon uh it's really only uh gotten uh, i mean it's sort of started out this way there were a few ayahuasca pilgrims early on i mean i guess i was one when i went to do my graduate work in 1981 but it really didn't get rolling until the early 90s and it really didn't turn into a flood of people into a into Iquitos, really probably alan's conference had a lot to do with it and you know because that was, you know, it was noticed by lots of people. Before that, in 1991, Luis Eduardo and Pablo Mamaringo's publication of, of the book Ayahuasca Visions was another catalyst. You know, that book was on the shelves of many bookstores and people with an interest in psychedelics. That was maybe the first time that they really encountered ayahuasca in a very, uh, you know, in a very attractive way. The book is beautiful. Uh, Pablo's painting. Are, are lovely and uh, you know and it presents us in a very good light and I think it and, and it's in English right so it brought it brought it to the attention of a lot of people mm-hmm. and that, that was a catalytic uh, force in the development of this ayahuasca tourism phenomenon you know which I do not think is necessarily a bad thing you know I think it's actually a, quite a good thing uh, but there are you know, issues. Uh, I mean, any time a global culture interfaces with a fragile, more or less indigenous cultures, there are going to be sparks and there are going to be abuses on both sides. And, you know, it, it's complicated. I want to bookmark that conversation because um, uh, okay. it's a very deep conversation. I definitely yeah. want to have it. But I also yeah. want to, you know, go back to time to that, to when you were uh, uh, um, in the jungle in the 70s uh, researching Okue. Now, right. you know, we had kind of segued into the sorcery of it all. I'm kind of right. Right. curious is it a snuff is it a beverage or you know no how do no think Okue and what no, was that like for you it's a paste it's uh it's made from the sap of various species of trees uh in the genus varola varola v-i-r-o-l-a it's a member of the nutmeg family it produces a reddish brown sap now does Many tribes. Any hmm? any relationship to Yopo? Exactly. It's the same plant. Oh, I did that as a snuff actually last right. year. Uh-huh. Right. Many, many groups use it as a snuff. So they powder it down, they completely dry it out, and then they powder it up and they take it as a snuff. This is an orally active form where they they basically they just concentrate it into this sticky, gooey stuff and they make little pills out of it. Actually pretty big pills, you know, like that. And and then you take it orally. And uh, it's what orally. Does it do? 
Well, that's complicated. It, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, because the tradition is is degraded and the knowledge is lost. Uh, 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 the knowledge of actually how to make it and which plants to use uh, is is uh, a sort of dying, and so and and so the, this was a focus of my graduate studies when I went back uh, in 1981 to investigate this as a graduate student. I didn't go back to La Chirera, but I went to another Witoto population center in Peru on the Rio Ampiacu. But what I found was that most of the people that I interviewed said, well, we sort of, you know, we sort of remember my grandfather was into this. I don't really know. I sort of remember how to do it. And, you know, they would take a crack at it and they would make it for us. And, uh, and we bioassay them. And, you know, we got about seven samples from seven different shamans. Three of them were sort of active one of them was highly active and the other ones were completely inactive so you know it's a difficult thing to to uh study but so the, do you remember what the highly active uh um sample that you had uh did to you uh, yes, yes, I do. I wrote it down. I kept notes, actually. And uh, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, it was sort of like an overdose of 5-methoxy-DMT. That's uh, kind of scary, actually. It was kind of scary. Uh, I was convinced at some point in the proceedings that I was probably not going to survive, Uh you know, but I did, of course. Most people do these things, you know. But <laughs> yeah, at that point you have to tell yourself, "Oh my God, I just have to ride it out." <laughs> yeah, but when I got it back to the lab and actually did the analysis on this on this sample, it turned out yes, it was in fact 5-methoxy DMT at very high levels and very little else. You know, I mean it. Typical spectrum with the varolas is there's DMT and 5-methoxy and other tryptamine derivatives. But there's a great deal of chemical variation between species and all that. So that's another reason, I think, why this knowledge, you know, it's it's tricky. You really have to know the right species and how to prepare them uh, in order to have an effective effective preparation. And that knowledge is lost. It's It's not as simple to make as ayahuasca. So this but, first experience with the Kuwe was was what opened your world to psychoactive plant medicines. From there, you just kept... No, 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 no. Uh, no, I had had... Well, I have to go back to 1971 at La Chirera. When my brother and I arrived at La Chirera, we were looking for a Kuwe, and we thought that's the real mystery. What we found at La Chirera was that it was a place about 200 acres had been cleared and they had Cebu cattle brought in the white humpbacks cattle so out of every cow pie were these beautiful clusters of psilocybin psilocybe cubensis mushrooms you know and we knew what those were we had no experience with them very little experience but we knew what they were and we thought at the time oh that's great these are around we can enjoy these while 
you know, we're waiting for the Ukuhe to show up, and that's the real mystery. Well, uh, we were quickly disabused of that notion because actually the psilocybin, the psilocybin mushrooms turned out to be, for us, the real mystery. And uh, and now I have to plug my book because this is a long story. It's all laid out in my memoir, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And it's a it's a long, complicated story. And I'm afraid if I try to explain it all here, we won't have time for anything else. Okay, so so we'll we'll definitely um, experience that part of your history through the book. So yeah, um, so you've studied plant hallucinogens for over thirty years. Um, what is your current work now with plant hallucinogens? A couple of different things. Since I've been working, uh, hosting these retreats, organizing these retreats in the Sacred Valley, that's partly what I'm doing. But I'm still very interested in in the chemistry and pharmacology of ayahuasca. And I'm very interested in the admixture plants. Uh, and, and ayahuasca exists at, a, uh, you know, at the center of a whole pharmacopoeia of plants. There are the, the well-known ones, the DMT-containing plants that are used almost, well, almost always in the making of ayahuasca. It's really not ayahuasca without those. But there are about a 150 species other species of plants that are associated with ayahuasca. Either they're taken with ayahuasca or they're used to diet before or after taking ayahuasca. A lot of these plants are not well investigated. And, and they also have DMT? Nobody knows. No, they don't. They don't. They're, that's the reason. That's what I mean. They're pharmacologically active, but their chemistry is either completely unknown or rather poorly known. So I mean, and a lot of these have the reputation of being hallucinogens or psychedelics in their own right. So I'm interested in investigating that. Um, And that's kind of what I'm focusing on now. That's a whole ethnobotany. You know, there's two or three PhD theses here for some enthusiastic graduate student, if I ever find one, to do this work. I think that's interesting. And then the other side, my other interest is in is in the clinical work with ayahuasca. We discussed the difficulties of doing that work here with ayahuasca, but I've said because of the FDA and because of these silly restrictions on, on plant medicines, but uh, I've been urging, I've been advocating and urging my colleagues to say, well, what do we need the FDA for? Why don't we just step out of that whole box and and do the work in Peru, you know, where ayahuasca is recognized. It's a national patent patrimony. It's legal. Um, And so the the whole regulatory uh, framework is very different. And you can do good well-structured, well-designed clinical studies with ayahuasca uh, in Peru. And actually, it's probably better from an ethical standpoint because, you know, you're not taking an indigenous plant medicine and ripping it out of its context and turning it over to the pharmaceutical industry, which I don't really want to see happen. Actually, I don't think there's much chance of it. You couldn't pay them to get interested in ayahuasca, you know, unless they saw that there was money to be made. I don't really think there is. But anyway, I'm, I'm curious. Why not? Why don't they think there's money to be made? I mean, you know, it seems like it's such a powerful plant. There could be so many therapeutic benefits to ayahuasca. Maybe if they were to, you know, derive some type of compound from it that is effective in treating depression. Uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, why Western medicine is not interested in this plant. 
Well, because for numerous reasons. You know, for one thing, the chemistry and pharmacology is well understood. These compounds are known. DMT is, there's, you know, and beta-carbolines. There's no patents to be had off this. And the fact is, the pharmaceutical industry is not interested in, in medicines that you might take two or three times in your lifetime. There's no profit there. You know, I mean, they want they want you to take medicines that you take four times a day for the rest of your life, right? Because, you know, their real agenda is to make money. Uh, you know, if it happens to help people, that's fine. But that's not the primary agenda. <laughs> the primary agenda is to make money. So there's, oh there's no business model for psychedelics in that sense. The business model... Uh, you know, that may emerge is that it is around these centers, the idea that you can establish a place where people can come and either with shamanic guidance or even psychotherapeutic guidance, people can have these experiences and benefit from that and, uh, you know, address problems that they may have like PTSD, addictions, depression, and these sorts of things, or just spiritual exploration, or, you know. Um, but the idea that you, you create a, a safe place where this can be done, and that's the whole rationale behind these treatment centers or these retreat centers, I should say. And what I want to do, since I insist uh, for whatever reason that there should at least be a little bit of science behind these things, I want to do some fairly well, fairly structured and fairly fairly well-designed clinical studies in Peru for PTSD. Uh, and that's an obvious therapeutic target, and there are a lot of people suffering, and uh, that would be the first one. There are others as well, but that's kind of the uh, the one that we can approach. So I expect to get those that study underway in the next year to 18 months, something like that. I mean, there have been... You may have seen the piece on CNN uh, with Lisa Ling. Oddly. I missed that actually, but I, oh. you know, she's. Um, I was, uh, first saw her, um, you know, video documentaries or investigations uh, years ago when she was a, a reporter or you know independent journalist for Current TV. So she spent time in the Amazon actually exploring, you know, just kind of like drug trafficking and other mm. topics there. So it wouldn't surprise me that she'd actually, you know, do something about ayahuasca uh, given that she spent you know a lot of time in the amazon i'm sure you know it would have uh, come across her radar so what was that yeah. uh what was that episode about because i missed it well she uh i advised the the producers of the show which is an independent film company called part two pictures uh Good people, good journalists, really trying to do a good job. I advised them quite extensively before they went down. They basically ignored all my advice. Uh, they they went to a place I'd never heard of outside of Quitos, and they had uh, some vets with them. They worked with a guy named Ryan Lecomte, who you may have heard of. He's founded an organization called Vets for Entheogenic Therapy, and uh, he took 
some of his people down, I think about eight people with him who had been diagnosed with PTSD and they had, uh, you know, they had a session and I, I think they had more than one, but they only filmed one. And, you know, I mean, not definitive. Most people felt that it was beneficial for them. Uh, but it's not like there were miracle cures or anything. That That's not the way these things work. Uh, but it was an interesting piece. I, I, I wouldn't have been the one I made, but I was just impressed that, that CNN, for whatever reason, was bold enough to, you know, put this on and, and actually show ayahuasca in a fairly positive light. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think people that watched it either had a positive impression or kind Kind of were scratching their heads, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think people had a really negative impression. It wasn't like, oh my God, these people are coming down and you know taking this psychedelic drug and uh, you know I mean, and that's often what you get in the in the mainstream media, you know. Yeah, so I know where Hollywood portrayals of ayahuasca as you know some kind of crazy <laughs> making. Uh, uh, you know, a drug that allows you to uh, gain control over, you know, stray cats and make them, you know, kill your victim at, at will, you know. That was an episode I saw in The X-Files, and I just was like, this is so not ayahuasca. So, <laughs> no, so, so not ayahuasca. Ideas. And it's a, <laughs> it's a uh, you know, it's a symptom of, uh, I think... You know our our culture. It's a symptom of how what a what a distorted lens. You know, if you want to use that term, uh, that people look through who are who are not familiar with the culture. I mean, to them, these are strange people, strange exotic culture, kind of scary. And then they have this bitter brew that tastes terrible and makes people go nuts. And yeah, I mean, you know, you, you know, the scene, this is not how it is at all. Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. that there's more, you know, neutral or positive accounts of ayahuasca in the mainstream media. So, you know, I definitely right. see like that it's alone is actually um, what I think is really resulting in much more global awareness about ayahuasca. So, you know, gosh, like maybe 10 years ago, no one knew what ayahuasca, you know, uh, was. And now it seems like I'm meeting so many people who want to have an ayahuasca experience or, you know, other people who have spent some time in the jungle and are now serving ayahuasca, which I have opinions about. And uh, so it seems like it's definitely making its its way into the global community. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this in terms of how that happened and whether or not it's a good thing. You love to ask the multi-level questions, don't you? <laughs> well, 
which is which is fine, but it, they're 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 complex, so it takes time to unpack them. But okay, let's but, try to you unpack know, this. But, but 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 what you what you have said is absolutely true. It's making its way onto a global stage, and I view it actually personally. This is not a scientific view, but but I'm not always a scientist. I'm a scientist every other Tuesday or whatever. But uh, and the personal view, I think this is a manifestation of this long coevolutionary relationship that ayahuasca has had with the human species. I mean, humans have a coevolution. Humans have a symbiotic relationship, if you will, with any plant species that is useful to us. That doesn't have to be psychoactive. I mean, we have a symbiotic relationship with corn or or other plants, but the uh, plants that contain these neuroactive chemicals are kind of special because they are the teacher plants, right? And they're the ones that in the context of indigenous cultures in South America, they, they, they call them. These are the plants that teach. And in fact, they do teach. And uh, what they're trying to teach us is wake up. <laughs> Basically, you know, wake up, you monkeys, because you're wrecking the planet. And and I view it as that ayahuasca has emerged onto the global stage almost out of desperation. I feel like it's been happy to stay in the Amazon and be the sort of let the indigenous people uh, look after it. But now things are getting desperate. And so it needs to get out to a wider audience. And, and so it's gone global when between its power uh, coupled with the power of the internet and you see this phenomenon emerging it's suddenly it's decided it's got i mean you know i'm anthropomorphizing it obviously but in some sense i think this is kind of what the biosphere the biosphere uh the guy in mind if you will is putting this forward to our species and saying wait here's our our delegate from the community of species that are really concerned about you guys because you don't seem to be able to wake up. And so wake up already and, uh, you know, and understand a few things. I think this is the main message that ayahuasca is bringing forth in this coevolutionary sense. Now, we're looking at a slice, a small slice of time, right? I mean, coevolution is a process that unfolds over millennia and many millennia. You know, it's a slow process. We look at, you know, ayahuasca has only been known to Western scientists since the 1850s. And, and so we're looking at a very small slice of time that it's been known to the Western, the Western mind, if you will. And so you can't draw too many conclusions about what's happening in this historical juncture. I think there are going to be rough spots, right? And there, there clearly are rough spots. I mean, some of these centers are not places you'd send your sister to. There's a lot of abuse of women. There's a lot of power tripping. There's a lot of weird brews that you don't know what's in them. And, and in any kind of cult situation, uh, and these are kind of culties, there's there's often a person who, you know, is attracted to the power and, and they, they come at it from a power standpoint. They want to control people. They want to, they want to have, they want to be a, a, like a guru, a, except they're the shaman. If I encounter shamans who work from that 
I don't know what you call it, operating mode. Paradigm. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I run the other way. I mean, you know, uh, what I want to see in a shaman is, a, is a, a, a guy or a gal who is humble because the humility tells me that they've learned from the medicine. So they've learned that there's nothing to be arrogant about. There's nothing to, uh, because what ayahuasca teaches you, or at least what it's taught me over many, many years of using it, is I don't know shit. (laughs) That's the lesson. That's what it teaches you. Remember that you don't know shit. And I hope I can use that word in a in a family podcast. But, but the we'll have basic market explicit on iTunes. <laughs> okay, right, all right. But really, that's the message. The message is: remember that you don't know very much, and uh, and remember also that you're not running things. Right? That you monkeys only think you're running things. We're not running things. We are part of nature. We don't own nature. We don't. It's not here for us us to exploit it's us it's here for us to be part of and to be nurtured by and for us to nurture nature to the extent that we can without fucking it up without destroying it and that's the message it's trying to uh, propagate to humanity i think on a global scale are kind of these basic re-understandings about our relationship to nature and the fact that you know we're part of it and we have to we have we're now we're part of the problem we have to become part of the solution or we're not going to survive nature will get along fine without us i'm not concerned about the survival of life on earth at least not right away, although we are dealing with some some you know pretty powerful pretty powerfully destructive technologies that you know we could actually undermine the conditions on earth so that it's inhospitable to all life i don't think we're quite there yet i think we'll be gone long before that but the sad part is why should we you know if we just change our consciousness and this is what these medicines are giving us the chance to do if we open ourselves to learning and re-understanding that we have to change uh how we view nature and we can't do that without changing how we view each other and how we view ourselves and all these fundamental consciousness shifts that ayahuasca can can help us with. And so uh, I guess I've kind of answered the question, do I think it's a good thing? Yes, I think it's a good thing. So with the I think it's part of this evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. So with the acceleration of ayahuasca on um, the global scene, what do you think think that's going to do for uh, human society and evolution in the next 50 to 100 years? Will this make us, will this phenomenon make us wiser and uh, more sustainable? Or do you think that, um, uh, that it's going to result in a big backlash from the powers that be? Uh... Which is another threat altogether. Which there's is the which awakening is another, part, and then yeah, there's of yeah. course the powers that yeah. be that are threatened by the awakening. But I'm hoping right. that the awakening can reach more people, so that those who are in a position to make change from within can do that, so that you know it doesn't end up being some you know um, uh, 
occupied movement where the folks get together in large and en masse and it seems like nothing's changing. Yeah. I mean, what you say, I could have said exactly the same thing. I mean, that, that would, I mean, hopefully this co-evolutionary relationship after we get through the bumps and after we learn how to use it in a way that is, you know, supportive and life affirming and all that and and not in the service of you know some cult some power agenda or whatever uh then hopefully it will make us wiser and more compassionate and more compassionate for each other and for nature and it will foster this shift in consciousness which we desperately need because if we don't wise up if we don't wise up and fast, we're not we're not going to be able to make the global changes that we need to to ensure that we survive and and really that nature survives. You know, so we need to uh, use this medicine, and and it's offering itself, you know, freely in a way. It's it's uh, so we need to take uh, we need to take best advantage of that if possible. Uh, now, as far as the pushback from the the powers that be i think one way i think one way to avoid that is and one of the things that are important as you said it's inherently subversive ayahuasca is so you know the power is that you need to get it into the hands and into the gullets of people who are in a position to make a change, right? The thought leaders, the financial leaders, the corporate leaders, the government leaders, all these people who are not necessarily bad people. I mean, they've just been involved in, in this, you know, bad situation for so long. That, that But ultimately, I think, you know, ayahuasca can change hearts and minds. We know that it does. And it needs to change the hearts and minds of the people who uh, are in a position to then propagate that thing and, and avoid the the Occupy Wall Street mentality where you've got a, a group of, you know, marginalized people who really want things to change but are basically powerless to to make that happen. You've got to get it to the people that can make it happen. Another reason why these centers in South America are so important or wherever they are because, you know, the, the center I work with, I mean, I, I can bring groups down to this place, Wilcatica, and sitting in the room, you know, there is financial capacity and corporate capacity half a trillion dollars sitting in the room not that not that people's values are are based only on money but you you know what i mean there's you know and so even even people in in the corridors of power in governments and corporations and and wherever they also sense that you know we do have a planetary crisis and they don't have a clue any more than anybody else what to do about it so i think they're they're also sincere they're also looking for answers and ayahuasca can be very helpful to them uh we have to we have to get to a point where we can have these conversations with people who normally we'd walk across the street to avoid in a certain sense or people who are not like us. There's always there's common ground 
between almost all people. And that's that's what we have to build on. Now, I don't know. I mean, you look at politics and, you know, the current situation and and you might not think so. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of given up on politics. I'm, you know, uh, it, it just is a puzzle to me why the most willfully ignorant people, people who are actually proud of their stupidity, seem to get into these positions of political power. I don't know if that's a reflection on their constituents. They think their constituents are all stupid. Obviously, they are stupid enough to elect them. Or, I don't know, but that's that's another... Yeah, oh yeah, we could go on and little, on about little detour sure. there that we don't want to get sucked uh-huh. into. <laughs> I, I do want to be mindful of time because we're coming up to the end of our segment, and I have a few last juicy questions I want to ask you, so... I love to ask this question, especially of uh, visionary researchers like you. Uh, So tell me, in your 30 years of exploring plant hallucinogens, uh, what was the most visionary, out-of-this-world experience that you've had? How did it affect you, and what did you learn from it? Uh, Well, that's a hard one to say. You have to read my book. You have to read my book. Oh, just a tidbit so we can know to buy your book. Okay, well, it's it's explained, it's described in in great detail in the book. But when I was working with the UDV, I was, in 1991, I attended a conference in, in, uh, in Rio, I believe it was, Sao Paulo. And it was hosted by the UDV, the Union de Vegetal, which is one of these syncretic churches from Brazil. And it was a conference about... Uh, many aspects of ayahuasca. This was back in 91. So there were anthropologists, chemists, botanists, and so on. And I was a recently minted graduate student. So I had published on ayahuasca and I was invited to come to this thing. And after this three-day conference, they got everyone together in their temple at the end of the conference. The conference was held at a, like a, a summer camp kind of place right next door to the temple so everyone got into this temple and took ayahuasca at the end of the conference this was the big finale and there were about 500 people in this temple that, that took it you know and uh drinking ayahuasca together i don't think i've ever been in a group that big That's it was it was amazing <laughs> it was amazing i mean you could have heard a pin drop you know in this place but anyway, I had my first really strong encounter with ayahuasca. I had taken it before in Peru. Never really connected with it to this extent uh, that I did there. I guess I was just ready for it. And I had a vision uh, about photosynthesis and about uh, – it was a vision of photosynthesis, which is the process of that plants do, collecting – the energy of the sun and using that to make organic chemistry to make food essentially that's the whole process that drives the biosphere that that keeps the that brings energy in from the sun from outer space and puts it into a usable form that life can use dylan thomas called this you know the green fuse that drives the flower and it's quite true it's very apt it is a fuse it's 
the plants have evolved this ability to grab energy, to harness energy, and to use it. Uh, I mean, it's a fundamental process. It's kind of a miracle in the sense that everything depends on it. There would be no life on Earth if it wasn't for this. So what I got was a front row seat uh, actually kind of the front of the roller coaster, actually, the first car in the roller coaster. And it took me through this molecular journey through the process of photosynthesis. So were in which- you a, a cell in a plant experiencing photosynthesis? Was that the experience... Uh, I was I was a water molecule in a plant going through the process of photosynthesis. Because <laughs> the uh, yeah the reactants in photosynthesis are water and carbon dioxide and sunlight, right? And how? And, and, and and in the process of uh, photosynthesis, the plant uses the power of sunlight to split water, right? To actually ionize water so that you've got – and the byproduct of that is oxygen, with, lucky for us, because that just escapes and that's what we live on. But then it uses those two hydrogens from, from water, the H2O. It uses the two hydrogens to reduce carbon dioxide into an organic compound. And that's the miracle right there. It fixes carbon, and that's the process that removes carbon out of the atmosphere. That's why deforestation, you know, is having such an impact on global warming because we're cutting down the, the trees that, that fix all that carbon. So how did it feel to be a photosynthesizing water molecule? It was terrifying. It was terrifying because I found myself on a conveyor belt where, you know, I was inside the chloroplast, inside the cell, being shuttled along with all these other molecules. And these bolts of lightning were coming down in front of me and totally smashing these water molecules into smithereens. (laughs) And I was one of them. (laughs) Oh, my God. How long did that last for? It sounds awful. I don't know. No, it was actually wonderful. It was both awful. Awful and wonderful. It sounds terrifying and wondrous at the same time. It was terrifying and wonderful, but it was, (laughs) yeah, it was very, very moving because... Uh, throughout the experience, I was getting this narrative of, uh, uh, you know, what was happening. And I was sort of, this is the kind of trip that uh, I guess plant biochemist nerds have, you know, if you understand the processes a little bit. I was getting this narration. Okay, now you're going through photosystem one, and this is what's happening. And now you're, you know, in photosystem two and all that. And it's sort of this guide, literally this voice speaking over my left shoulder, kind of explaining to me what was going on and and it was very moving because uh you know at the end of it i had this whole thing about about the amazon and this whole you know sad feeling that that what what is going to happen to us we're doomed if we destroy the amazon how can we be doing this you know and that was my sense but then the reassuring voice literally came at me with this what i said before you monkeys only think you're running things i mean that's what it said to me in English. So many words. It said that, and it said, "You don't think we're going to let this happen, do you?" And then I was. It was extremely cathartic for me because then I realized, no, we're not running things. We're not running things at all. This plant wisdom that envelops the planet and nurtures the planet and keeps life going on the planet—they're running things. 
And thank God they are, because, you know, when they stop running things, we're in big trouble. So that was that was kind of the message. And, and uh, it was extremely moving. And it was, you know, it was despair and redemption. And uh, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. I mean, I have had other experiences, but that one stuck with me. And, uh, you know, I've written about it. And yeah, and and uh, I, I've adopted, uh, you know, what it told me is kind of my own mantra. You know, this this thing about you monkeys only think you're running things. And, and it's true. So how have your visionary experiences connected you with your life purpose, Dennis? Well... Uh, I, I guess, uh, I mean, in various ways, you know, it's complex, but it's partly uh, I, I feel like I've become a spokesman for ayahuasca and this point of view. And in the process, I have to become a spokesman for the, the, the real threats that face our planetary ecosystem and especially the Amazonian ecosystem. So on the philosophical side or on the public side, I guess I'm a, a crusader, a a spokesman and a speaker about these things. And on the scientific side, I mean, before any of this happened, I was just as a result of my work with indigenous people and, and spending time in the Amazon, I'm just very interested in all that biodiversity down there. I mean, there's I, there there are trillions of dollars worth of new medicines to be found in the Amazon. There are new foods that nobody's used. There's all sorts of resources that could be explored and developed in a way that would improve life on Earth, improve many people's life. But it has to happen from within an ethical framework, right? Because you have to acknowledge and give back something to the indigenous people that have been the keepers of this knowledge for so long. And the usual model up to now has been the corporate predator model. You know, I mean, corporations come in and they'll take the plants and they'll go investigate them, patent them, make billion-dollar drugs out of them. Do the indigenous people ever get even a tiny slice of that pie? No. It's very rare that they give anything back. That's biopiracy, right? We can't be doing this from a from a standpoint of biopiracy. I mean, it's just not right. So we have to find ways to empower indigenous people or somehow at least acknowledge that indigenous people and the plants themselves, I dare say, uh, should have a place at the table. I don't know if you know about the work of the Ethnobotanical Stewardship Council. You know, I've come across that organization in my yeah. research around yeah. Uh, um, yeah. you know plant medicines and uh, you know psychedelic thought leaders, so to speak. So, tell me more about this organization. Well, they're a relatively new organization. They've been around uh, about two years. They're a nonprofit, and basically, the the people that have found it have come out of the sort of fair trade NGO sector. They've been involved in fair trade and sustainable development of of crops like coffee and chocolate and so on. And that's their that's their expertise and their ethical stance. Basically, they have a, a double agenda. They, they want to ensure the sustainability and the quality of ayahuasca and other sacred medicines. They want to foster the propagation of ayahuasca because so many people want it now. It's The supplies are actually, uh, well, they're not about to disappear, but there is pressure on them in certain places. 
So they want to address that. They also want to address best practices for these retreat centers. And they want to essentially through volunteerism and transparency and consensus and dialogue, uh, they want to give these retreat centers a chance to, you know, voluntarily adhere to some agreed upon best practices, some pretty common sense things, really, that we're not going to molest women, we're not going to make odd brews that have things like toei and other ingredients in them, you know, that really don't, don't need to be there for, you know, toei unless you're... Yeah, like Datura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it. That's the, their basic, uh, uh, you know, that's their basic stance. And, and then they, and they're trying to do it through dialogue. They, they're developing this ayahuasca health guide, which I think is a good thing. Uh, and again, it's something that they see a need to do, but they invite people to give their input. I like it that they're, it's not like they, they don't want to be the ayahuasca police, uh, you know, and they can't be anyway. They want to foster a sense of collaboration and cooperation among all these different stakeholders. And that ranges from people that grow it to indigenous shamans to tourists to people that come down and set up these centers. Ultimately, this this medicine and the activities that have grown up around it are, are good things. And uh, they just want to sort of create uh, opportunities to maximize the good and minimize the abuses, which I don't suppose you'll ever get away with, away from completely. Yeah, I really think it's good to have a set of guidelines you know, I think especially when you, you know, as part of this conversation we've had about, you know, the old world meets the new world. I mean, one of the things that the you know, indigenous shamans and the elders are not prepared to deal with, they don't know really how to, is the fact that, you know, a lot of the Westerners that are showing up in their villages that are traveling down to the Amazon, they may be on antidepressant drugs and SSRI inhibitors and right. someone that operates a, a center or a retreat center that, you know, deals more with the international community may know how to do the health screening and the health waiver and ask these questions, but the the uh, elder shamans don't know. So, so yeah. it's good to have that dialogue and to establish some basic set of guidelines so that everyone can have a positive experience. Right. And that that's basically what what they're about, you know, is to help with education, develop good practices, certain standards that standards, they, they're not going to force them to buy into them. But if you want to be in, you know, if you want to have the ESC seal of good practices on your doorstep or whatever, yeah, that's then, a huge, you, you know, know, trust factor. That's that, a good that, idea. The biggest thing for people is they don't know who to go to, to drink ayahuasca, because there's like so much wrapped around it is like the, the spiritual right. Safety, you know, is the shaman really a shaman, like a curandero, or is he more like a brujo? And then, of course, it's like the physical safety of like whether or not you're going to be served good medicine. So there's a lot that goes into. Uh, you know, selecting who it is that you drink ayahuasca with and where you go. And I get people that ask me all the time. And after having so many, you know, kind of disappointing experiences in the West, I no longer recommend groups in the West uh, to to drink with. Uh, I might recommend, you know, some centers down in South America, in Brazil or in Peru. But a lot of the people who are asking me, you know, are not going to be able to make that trip to go down there. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so I think it's an excellent... But, but um, 
there are some good places in North America too. I mean, there are there are some good centers in North America. I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know of all of them, but I know of a few where they're they're doing good work. But they they have to be completely under the radar. That's which the thing is you stupid. can't figure out like which centers are doing the good work because it's not right. like you can list on their website and it's no, all word no. of mouth. And then there's the whole you know getting you know endorsements. You know when everything's all on the down low. Yeah, there's one center that I would recommend to people um, that I know of that I think they, they hold a really clean work. But um, but yeah, it's it's hard when everything's kind of, um, uh, you know, clandestine like that, especially in North America. Right, right. So that's one of the things that we we need to do and actually that's kind of happening there's uh uh one lawyer who helped uh the UDV and the Santo Daime get their uh recognition for using ayahuasca as a religious practice in the states so those religions are are legal they can use ayahuasca right but not everybody wants to join one of those churches i'm one of them i i'm not a church goer i mean I, neither i did that when i was work, a kid but, i'm done yeah. with that but, <laughs> but i am um you know um well, this lawyer that, that I'm working with, I'm a consultant. There are several other people. He's trying to make the case that curanderismo or vegetalismo, as practiced in Peru, is a bona fide religious practice and it should be protected along with these other practices. It's a tougher case to make because there's no church, there's no buildings, there's no doctrine, there's no, no dogma, you know. But it's it's clearly a religious practice, you know, and so it should be protected. And if they get that approved, then that will effectively make, uh, you know, these centers in the states uh, legitimate and legal. And I think that's also a good thing, you know. I, I think that you should try to... Uh, interview Josh Wickerham. He's one of the founders of the Ethnobotanical Stewardship Council. Yes, uh, I would just, love to have an introduction to Josh and uh, discover more yeah. about that work. I think I recall seeing that organization crop up my radar a couple, maybe over a year ago when they were asking for people to you know, participate in this dialogue they were having. Well, you know, they just hosted this uh, Ayahuasca World Ayahuasca Conference in Ibiza? Oh, I was going to go to that. Actually, my uh, my good friend, uh, Sia Hunequin, who's the, um, uh, I guess people would refer to him as a chief. Um, he's a cacique of the um, Hunequin indigenous, uh, um, well, the Kashinawa indigenous territories of um, uh, Upper Jordão in Brazil. Um, and he was at that that conference, so I was kind of bummed not to go, but it was not in my trajectory around the world this time around. But yes, yes, maybe next year. It was a great conference. Yeah, wow. you should have been there. I was there. It was very good. Wow. Well, you don't you don't need an introduction to Josh. I mean, he'll he'll be happy to talk to you if you just write him. At, okay, yeah. all right, I'll but, let you. But I, I'm happy to give you an introduction, but it's not necessary. I mean. You know, he he'll talk to anybody. He's he's the <laughs> spokesman for ESC. That's his okay. job. All you right, know? all right. Well, and, I always appreciate intros because it's much more personable. But um, sure, yeah. no problem. Okay, awesome. So thank you so much for joining.
joining me today. I really appreciate your your time and your stories and your insights and uh, information. How can we best stay in touch with you, Dennis? Uh, well, I have. Uh, it's it's not that easy. <laughs> I, I have a website uh, for my book, which is called The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And you can order it from Amazon. You can order it from that website. Uh, and I have a Facebook page for that. So that's probably the easiest way to uh, get in touch with me is through that Facebook page. Fantastic. Or, or you can email me through the Hefter Research Institute. So that's uh, Dennis at Hefter.org. And uh, they'll, they'll pass it along. Uh, I, I don't give out my personal email, although I probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm buried in email all the time. So, you know, it's, it's hopeless. <laughs> I'm sure you know how that goes. But those are good ways to reach me. I'm not hard to reach. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Dennis. And you have a beautiful evening. Okay. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we're actually being guided by plant consciousness? I personally believe that there is a reason why ayahuasca is hitting the mainstream, and I believe it's because it's the planet's way of getting us dumb apes to wake up and change ourselves so that we don't end up destroying the earth and ourselves by our stupidity. I'd love to hear what your comments are in the show notes at entheonation.com slash five. If you like this episode, you can get access to this transcript by texting entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Simply reply to the SMS with your best email address to receive consciousness-raising content delivered straight to your inbox. We're going to end this episode now with a track called Wingspan from the album Flight Patterns by Birds of Paradise.